0: Helen Peterson talks about her new book, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm Christina Yerlingbeer. hope you guys are all gearing up for a very nice summer. So a while back, a listener wrote to the show and said that he'd love to hear some TV and film recommendations. First of all, thank you so much for writing, and good idea. So at the end of the show, I will leave you with some of my personal favorites, what to catch up on this summer, and what I can't wait to see. But first, here is an author and a book that I highly recommend. I've been reading Anne Helen Peterson for a long time now. She's a senior culture writer for BuzzFeed and has a PhD in media studies. She specializes in fame and stardom and has written a lot about celebrity as a sort of mirror in which we see ourselves, our culture, our dreams, and our anxieties. It's a very interesting, academic, and entertaining look at how celebrity culture embodies our own preoccupations— and putting pop culture into historical context, something I've talked a lot about here on Pop Culture Confidential. She has reported on and authored some great pieces, like, for example, Jennifer Lawrence and the History of Cool Girls, and written about Melania Trump's image, for example. Her first book was the critically acclaimed Scandals of Classic Hollywood, Sex, Deviance, and Drama from the Golden Age of American Cinema, Her new book examines a group of iconic, brave women whose behavior pushes the boundaries of what some seem to think is acceptable for women in the limelight. What does it mean to be a woman in American popular culture today? Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman, consists of ten essays, each about a powerful, famous woman. With chapters like, for example, Lena Dunham, Too Naked, Madonna, Too Old, Serena Williams, Too Strong, Melissa McCarthy, Too Fat, and more. Anne Helen Peterson, thank you so much for joining me, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for
1: having me, and it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Before I get into the book, I I wanted to ask you a little bit about your previous writing. You've you've written a lot about the sort of celebrity industrial complex that we live in, and how celebrity image like Tom Cruise and Angelina Jolie is sort of a manifestation of our culture, so to speak, and our values. Um, Can you give a few examples of this and a few celebrities of what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know... Star theory is this academic idea that, you know, if you can look back at any star in our history and you can look at their image, you know, and their image is anything that we knew about them. So things that they said in interviews, but also their roles on screen, all of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the people who become popular, whose images really resonate, it's because those images seem to reflect or embody things that matter to us. So ideologies, understandings of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a person of color, you know, what it means to be, um, you know, a child even. Like Shirley Temple is a really great example of, she embodied the understanding of what, you know, in 1930s, Depression era, United States, this kind of angelic child who doesn't work, who only gets to play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of the, the best work really teases out the, Um, the specifics of the star's image, but also the specifics of the ideology at the time, which was never as simple as, you know, people look at 1950s America and think things like, oh, it was a time of like suburban bliss. But there were also a lot of very complicated things going on with the understanding of femininity and sex. And, you know, you can look at Marilyn Monroe's image and extrapolate a lot about what was going on, conflicting ideas about what it meant to be a woman at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. And how about someone like, like today, like uh, Tom Cruise, for example, what, what does he manifest in our culture? Would you say his image? I mean,
1: yeah, I mean, it's like this very precise controlling masculinity that doesn't age mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think in some ways, Tom Cruise, and I haven't thought this out until you asked this, but is like this avatar of enduring, you know, American world dominance right. and the fact <laughs> Like the fact that Tom Cruise is kind of, um, you know, he's had to work so hard to preserve his body and his face and his and his dominance of the box office. You know, that's the struggle that America has had as well. But it's also become clear that that struggle, you know, it's a uh, it's failing.
0: Right, right. Um, let's move on to the book you you have covered here. Some incredibly hardworking, talented women who, when you read the book, you really God, the level of shit they had to endure, excuse my language, um, yeah. in order to sort of do their craft, really. Um, tell me a little why you decided to write this book.
1: You know, I was thinking a couple years ago, like, who are the people who I'm thinking about all the time? Who are just like the most compelling celebrities who, you know, not necessarily like the biggest stars. So I have like a chapter on the stars of a TV show. It's very popular in the States, but like not mainstream. It's called Broad City. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, but they still, they were fascinating to me, all of these women. And so I thought, what what unites them? And it was this strain of unruliness.
0: And describe what you mean by unruly and and what would it mean to be accepted in, in, in pop culture today as a woman?
1: Yeah, yeah. So unruliness, I think of in general as too muchness. So, um, you know, this might be a very English phrase, but like just anytime you encounter a woman and maybe you come back or you're thinking to yourself, you're like, oh, well that person was just too much. And what that phrase means is it's a real, it's a, uh, ambiguous way of saying that they were taking up too much space. They talked too much. They talked too loud. They had too strong of opinions, their makeup, they had too much makeup on, you know, then That's all ways of saying they made me slightly uncomfortable because they weren't acting out this very, um, pretty defined understanding of what a good or proper feminine woman does.
0: It's a horrible line we have to walk because you never really know what the rules are either, right? I mean, um, who who would you say is making the rules in terms of these celebrity women?
1: You know, that's a good question that a lot of people have asked me over the last week. They're like, so is it men's fault? Is it women's fault? Is it the media's fault? I mean, it's no one's fault. Ideology is created by all of these clusters of Uh, you know, implicit and explicit understandings. You know, we don't, there's no backroom council that decides what proper femininity is. Um, And it shifts obviously over time. And so because there's no rules, there's no written rules. Oftentimes you don't know that you have transgressed those boundaries until after you've done it. You know, like people are like, oh, that was too much. And so I think women growing up, we internalize Either by listening to other people, by looking at covers of magazines, by watching the way that like our friends or our moms or our parents like gossip about other people or say things about, you know, people that they see in their public lives. That's how we internalize these ideas.
0: And of course, in the book, one of the things that is, is unruly for women or can be um, or needs to be controlled in different ways is, of course, the body, which which comes in a, many, many chapters of your book. Can you talk a little bit about a few of the, the women that you talk a lot about? Nicki Minaj, Lena Dunham, Melissa McCarthy, for example, and how their body is sort of an unruly um, element for
1: people. Yeah, you know, women have been disciplining and containing their bodies for centuries. So if you think about it, oftentimes the the periods of most bodily constraint and, and discipline are oftentimes when women are gaining more power So it's like, oh, you know, like think of our moment right now. It's like women are making inroads in the public sphere and, in, you know, business, education, all sorts of things more than ever before. But we're also at arguably the most, uh, the most crazy time in terms of like, here is what your body should look like. It needs to be disciplined in this certain way in order for you to be a successful person. And I think that, you know, someone like Melissa McCarthy, I talk a lot about, how she pushes back against this idea that's very popular in America that like everybody is beautiful right love mm-hmm. yourself love the body you're in there's advertising there's so many messages that that say that but at the same time i mean that's a lie because everything else in our culture says you are a more valuable person if you're slender
0: but still people they put her i mean she's I mean, if you say she's she's fat, but I mean, that, that's I think if she would lose weight, people would probably not like that either. It just seems like a double edged sword everywhere.
1: Yeah. And, you know, she did. She over the course of her career, she has lost some weight. And I think people insist on making that the story of her is like, oh, did you slim down in order to have these other roles? Oh. And, you know, asking her, what's well, what's your secret? And she refuses, and I think a, a really interesting and positive way, she refuses to have that be the primary story of her image and of her career. You know, she didn't do, like, a profile of, like, why I slimmed down or, like, how I did it, which lots of stars do, how I lost the weight. Right, right. Um, and, and when people ask her questions about it, she always gives, like, the most boring answers. It's great. She's like, <laughs> Just normal life, just, you know, walking, like, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know, just being busy. And I think that that's a really effective deflection of that attempt to make that the central conversation about her.
0: And what about someone like Nicki Minaj? What what is her unruliness?
1: So her is, you know, each of the women has a title in like a chapter title that is one of the dominant ways that they are considered unruly. And it's not that I think that they're too slutty as Nicki Minaj no, is. Of <laughs> it's that others have, have labeled her that. And the the controversy about Nicki Minaj and the real pushback came when her video for Anaconda came out. Um, and what's fascinating and what I hadn't really realized until I started doing this research is that Nicki Minaj made a very, very pointed decision the beginning of her mainstream career to not have any part of her image be about her body. Mm -hmm. You know, the beginning of her mainstream career was all about wigs and accents and outfits and kind of this plastic exterior. And so it was about appearance in that way, but it was about a playfulness and certainly not about like the fetishization of different parts of her body. And, you know, she did that because she wanted to distinguish herself from a lot of the, the female rappers that had come before, whose you know, the primary way that people talked about them was about their bodies, and it, and it delegitimized them in a lot of ways. And after she had gained all this success, she decided, oh, okay, you know, maybe I can experiment now with doing these other, like, with actually, you know, having a fun and funny video mm-hmm. about my butt. <laughs> and, and that was a conscious decision. And I think that what that was a lot of the, the intentionality was lost in the discussions about that video.
0: That people didn't see what she was doing or didn't want to. Yes. Yeah, because there seems to be this discussion, the sort of undressing. Um, you can't win because then there becomes this discussion. If women decide to um sort of undress more in in public is she doing it for herself for her sexual power or is she a slave to something else to patriarchy or whatever that would be then that discussion ensues right
1: Right. And a lot of that discussion you know a lot of the the denigration of her comes from white people (laughs) um Not necessarily all, but like a lot of the think pieces about, oh, this video is catering to the male gaze were from white feminists. And I think lacked a lot of the intersectional uh, analysis of like, how would this be different for a black woman who, you know, black women for so long did not have control over their own sexuality and how it was marketed. So that's in the book, I try to really consider how. Minaj might be thinking and considering that differently.
0: Has she addressed it herself, the the sort of the barrage of criticism that she would get?
1: You know, she didn't speak specifically like, I'm a black woman, so I think of my sexuality differently. Um, What she has done a lot of and what I think, you know, it's there for anyone who's ready to listen is talk about the fact that she makes every single decision (laughs) in her career, that none of this has been made for her. You know, that it's not like a team of male executives who are like, you know what would sell a lot of records is if you did this. And so, you know, I I believe there's a tendency, I think, sometimes, especially with women to when they say something about their intentionality or what they believe to say, well, that's false consciousness. You know, like they don't actually understand what's at stake. And I think that I I go towards the analysis of Nicki Minaj and the other women in this book actually with the perspective of believing what they say.
0: Because another thing sort of about the the female body and experience that that you write about here is, is pregnancy. Um, You have Kim Kardashian, who's of course built a career on, on uh, mainly, I I would say on, on her image and her looks and such. And, and, and when she became pregnant, it became this whole big deal. What can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah. You know, Kim Kardashian, part of her fame, and she's never been, you know, like reticent to admit this, that her fame is rooted in her body. You know, whether it was through the sex tape that really first introduced her to uh, to American audiences or various photo shoots and her Instagram. And then, you know, through the, the course of the reality show, just the commodification of everyday life and of her personality. Um, but then when she became pregnant she had maintained this perfect image or a very manicured image for a very long time. And I think what she thought would happen when she got pregnant is she would have a, a very cute, you know, basketball pregnancy. And what that means is like, it looks like you swallowed a basketball and then, you know, you give birth and then it doesn't look and then like it you disappear sw- and you look the same. Yeah. <laughs> and she just, she had um, a very different sort of pregnancy that underlines the fact that like every woman, their body responds differently to raising another baby inside of you. <laughs> and she had to, it, it, it wasn't necessarily apparent. You know, she wasn't making public, like public uh, declarations about this at the time. But when you watch the TV show, it becomes very apparent how much she struggled with not having acute pregnancy. And so what I try to do with that chapter is think through how did we get to this point? And it's really only within the last 10 years that we've gotten to this point of fetishizing this cute pregnancy and having that be the standard against which all women judge their own pregnancies.
0: But wasn't that wonderful that Kim opened the door to sort of saying it's really, I mean, I've been pregnant three times. It's really hard Um, that someone would actually say it and and not be criticized for, for feeling that way.
1: Yeah. And she, you know, very publicly has said like every pregnancy is different The, you know, the complicated thing about Kim Kardashian and about a lot of women in this book, you know, some of them are v- much easier as a feminist to just like to root for across the board. You're like, yes, everything you're doing is great. Right. right. But Kim Kardashian, not only has she disavowed feminism because she's not a quote, free the nipple type gal when really, I mean, if anyone's freeing the nipple, it is Kim Kardashian. Um, but she also you know, recently she said some things about like how I didn't become I didn't feel like a woman or I didn't become a woman until I until I gave birth, until I became a mother. You know, that's very <laughs> that's a very strict and limiting understanding of what it you know, who gets to be a woman and who doesn't. Right. And so you have to with all of these women, you have to balance these contradictions like being a woman, being an unruly woman is very complicated.
0: Right, right. I mean, there's a big, There's. it's an interesting how sort of after I read the book, I was sort of thinking how incredibly different, but also how incredibly alike like Kim Kardashian and Lena Dunham are. And totally. and, and it's like really weird. But when you've read the both of them, you sort of see that they're, they they handle things, very different things that they have to handle, but they handle them in a lot of the same ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. And especially, you know, I I say this, I think in the conclusion, but like, I didn't realize until I had a little bit of distance from doing all the chapters, like all of these women are workaholics. Mm. They are, you know, they work endlessly, they are perfectionists. they, um, you know, are incredibly diligent. And part of that work is because it's really difficult to be a female celebrity. Like you just, you fail all the time. You're trying to to please people all the time. It's just, it's a lot.
0: Right, right. You have another mom this, that you, you have a, you, you say is the lifestyle super mom, which is sort of like a Reese Witherspoon type, um, um, which also is incredibly difficult for us regular people to, to live up to those standards, but they also get a lot of crap. So everyone's getting crap in every different way. Totally.
1: Yeah, I do think that the like the, you know the lifestyle supermoms or that are part of what I call the new domesticity so they're in some ways like this real throwback to you know, you should you should always look cute and always have great food. It's just it's like a little bit more bourgeois than like the 1950s version.
0: They're definitely um, not saying what Kim Kardashian is saying that it's really really hard to feel feminine. They're looking peppy all the time and and in yes. and, and selling products also, um, yes. but seem to still be more. There's a feeling that there's a natural part of it, which it really isn't.
1: <laughs> right. Well, and they they cloak their business acumen in these domestic products, you know, in the feminized domestic sphere. So it's much easier to not, you know, for that, that doesn't make people anxious the way that you know, so many men, I find that Kim Kardashian pisses off men so much because oh, really? they're like, she has no talent. Mm hmm. And I'm like, well, her talent, like any successful business person, you know, I was on the rate doing a radio interview yesterday. And this person who's interviewing me as man was very just angry about her lack of talent. And I said, well, she's a really good business person at marketing herself and marketing, you know, ancillary products. And I, you know, I asked, what about you know, people who make like, I don't know, Toys, like throw away toys, like that's not a product, like it's not a product that means something, right? It doesn't have societal meaning or right. resonance. But no, you'd be like, oh, you made a million dollars off of making this like little toy that kids play with. There's this toy in the States right now called a fidget spinner.
0: Right. It's oh, just- here too. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So yeah, the fidget spinner. So like whoever made the fidget spinner, you know, millions and millions of dollars, And no one's like, oh, well, we should denigrate their achievement (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean anything.
0: I guess the question is sort of what do, I mean, not only Kardashian, but many of the women in the book, what, what, what are, what image are they projecting to sort of girls, small, young girls and boys? And, and what does that mean? I mean, is it, are these images good? Are they seeing a powerful businesswoman, or are they seeing something else?
1: Right. You know, that's a really complicated question. It's always like, it goes back to some of the, you know, about representation. Okay. So what does representation mean? If, if you're a young person, you're primarily looking, you're primarily looking at representations in terms of looks, right. In terms of aesthetics. right? And so I think it matters like Serena Williams is incredibly important in that perspective because you can see someone who doesn't look like a certain sort of white person playing tennis, right. Like a champion of of this white tennis ball. Right, that we're used to. And then, but someone like Kim, like, what does Kim say? Does Kim say, okay, like, you can be beautiful and sexual and also super rich? Um, which, you know, I think there's something to be said about, uh... The idea that you can be an empowered woman and also like makeup, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm always super frustrated with anyone who's like, oh, it's frivolous and unfeminist. If you like makeup, Mm -hmm. Um, people like makeup for many reasons. And they're not all about appealing to men.
0: I know a lot of guys who collect sneakers. I don't know if that's
1: (laughs) right, (laughs) Right. totally. But I think that, you know, that's one reason that like my mom, (laughs) you know, she always talked to me, not. Like, that is a bad representation or that is a good one. She actually just had conversations where we were like, what do you think about that? You know, and the one that I always think of is about The Little Mermaid, which was my favorite film when I was in elementary school. And she was like, so do you see that like Ariel had to lose her voice to gain a man, mm-hmm. <laughs> like literally lose her voice? And, you know, that's always stuck with me. Not because she was saying this is a bad TV show or you or Ariel's bad, but because we actually had a conversation about it. Right. And so when it comes to the way that girls and young girls and boys internalize celebrity messages, I think it's incumbent upon the adults around them to have more sophisticated conversations about it. And I don't mean like a college lecture about it. It's more like oh, well, what do you think about Nicki Minaj? Why do you like her music? Like, what's interesting about her? That sort of thing. Right,
0: right. Which many may not have access to people who will talk to them, but I mean, that's the hope that one, totally. that one has. So, um, I just want to talk a little bit more about um, Madonna, who's in the book also, which is of a, a huge cultural icon through so many years and talk about representation. But I get the feeling that you write in the little book that she's, doesn't want to age, at least not publicly, and that she's almost too much um, not aging gracefully, even in sort of in the book's opinion. Or Am, am I right?
1: Well, I, you know, it's funny. I thought when I started writing this chapter, I thought it was going to be like, Madonna is proving that you can be sexy at any age. You know, she's flagrant in that idea. And what really became apparent to me Is that Madonna doesn't think that being old is sexy. She thinks like, you know, she thinks you can be 50 and sexy, but only if you look like Madonna. Right. So it's not, it's not actually attempting to change how people think about women aging and sex, that intersection. It's her attempting to defy age age itself. So in that way, she's reinscribing this idea that only if you look like you're 25 or 35 can you be a sexual person.
0: So you think she's doing a bit of a disservice to women in terms of the natural process of aging?
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. I think and she also, you know, she there's no solidarity with like other women who are aging. Mm -hmm. And she like, and when she was younger, she was never like, oh, you know what? We should pay attention to like older women who are aging and they're sexy too. It was only once she got there and realized that it was in a, you know, an invisible or unruly spot that she was like, okay, I'm going to, instead of trying to change like the system itself, I'm just kind of try to win the system by discipline, my, disciplining my body To look like I'm younger than I am,
0: right, right, Um, because what you're saying with a lot of the other women in the book is that they sort of they do show solidarity with um, and their unruliness with other women's unruliness in a way that she doesn't really.
1: Yeah, Mm. for sure. Even though you know a lot of them are connected, like you know, Nicki Minaj does like a rap on one of Madonna's songs. Like there, there are a lot of different connections, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I don't think that. Madonna, you know, she's been unruly for a very long time, but I also think that a lot of the the ways in which she was unruly were not necessarily, um, didn't have a ton of substance. Mm -hmm. They were all, and they were very much about the personal and the individual and less about systemic change.
0: Right, right. But do you think that she has more, um, of a responsibility than say Kim Kardashian for that, to do that?
1: Um I mean that's a good question. You know, I don't think the question of celebrity and responsibility is always a weird one, right? <laughs> like what when you have a when you have a public platform, what is your responsibility? If you have done something that's feminist, what what becomes your responsibility? Like after Kim Kardashian had that pregnancy that was disappointing to her, did she have a responsibility to speak out for other like to try to change the way that other people thought about pregnancy? Um and the answer is, I don't think anyone like there's there's no responsibility. I think you can be dis- disappointed with people if they don't speak out about things that you would hope. Like you could be like, oh well, here's wh- what I assumed about the sort of person you are. Right. right? Here's what I assumed you would advocate for. I think a lot of the backlash against Taylor Swift is actually rooted in like you, you know, I assumed because you said you were all about women and sisterhood and supporting other women, that maybe you would speak out publicly for Hillary Clinton, but you've remained curiously silent. Um, but is it a, is it, (laughs) is it a celebrity's responsibility to advocate for a politician? I don't think it's like, it's not a duty, but it is a choice.
0: Mm. One thing I think that was also really interesting, uh, um, is when you talk about if I just go back one minute to the body, um, because there's a lot of different body shapes now, which is really nice. You can see more and more of it. There's you no know, bigger yeah. this and that, but you also write, which I hadn't really thought about before. They are very, even though the sort of butt is bigger, so they're still super disciplined. Um, yeah. They want that big butt. I mean, it's it, it's every, even the women who are um, different shapes and sizes, what they're what they're saying is that I wanted it this way and I made it this way, either by surgery or by training in this weight crunches to make my butt bigger and it's all it still has to be disciplined you just can't be have a few pounds too much
1: yeah yeah I mean that so it's a scholar named Susan Bordeaux who is so smart about this and she talked about how like the thing that is considered abject or truly unruly is this idea of like you know untoned flesh So Lena Dunham's body, for example, when it's naked, when it's when it's revealed on the screen, like it's not so much that she has that, you know, she's 10, 15 pounds heavier than people that you usually see on screen. It's that her flesh is undisciplined. It's not toned. It's not you know, it's not all in her butt or in her boobs. Like she has a different sort of body shape. And that is what makes people react so powerfully.
0: You frame the book, um, of course, which, which was great with, with Hillary Clinton. Tell me a little bit about what you found most distressing about, um, the reactions to Hillary Clinton as a woman.
1: Yeah. You know, I, the chapter that I had written originally, uh, was about her winning. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, like, oh, you, you, know, you had
0: done that. You wrote one. Yeah. Right?
1: Well, I just like it was. It was with anticipating that she would win. You know, I had a a place where I had like a little blank spot for how much she she won the election by. Um, which you know she did win the the popular vote. So mm-hmm. there is like that to me is in some ways like it just perfectly crystallizes the thing about these women. Like Hillary Clinton won by several million. Uh, Votes, but then she lost in this other way, Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know, like like, it's a step forward, but a step back. Uh, and I think, so what I, while I was, uh, writing and then editing, like doing the, the edits on the book, I was also reporting on like at Trump rallies and hearing the way that people talked about, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, but also themselves. So I, I was at a Trump rally, the first one after the Access Hollywood tapes came out. And I just talked you know, exclusively to women about, you know, what, it, what do you think about this? And what they said was like, that's how, you know, a guy talking like that, like if my husband didn't talk like that, I wouldn't, you know, I think there was something wrong with him. Or, you know, like a guy grabbing an ass, that's how you know that you're still desirable. Um, And. I think that it was hard and then but then also just this huge pushback against Hillary that she, you know, lock her up, but also that, like, she's a hag and a witch and just, you know, this incredible energy against her that I think was so much more rooted in like, here's a woman who. Who has refused to heed for so long, for a very long time, has refused to heed how other people would like. A woman in her various positions to behave.
0: Right. But I mean, she's behaved uh, completely appropriately for someone with her, the jobs she's had, which is what makes it so frustrating.
1: <laughs> totally. Totally. She's so good. She has been, she is magnificently capable, but being a capable woman in public is oftentimes you have to, um, you know, there has to be subtle ways that you censor that woman and, and, and also communicate to other women and other little girls that like here's what has happened. Here's what happens to you if you dare to, to do this in public.
0: Okay, can you elaborate? You mean you have to make concessions of, of some sort? What what would you say that they are?
1: Well, well, I am saying that like you have to. Other people use language. They use attitudes. You know, they in order to show to censor to bring down to knock down these women who have achieved other things. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, yes, I understand that. And that you have to sort of show that at the same time.
1: Right. Well, and then, so on the the subject of concessions, I think, you know, I chose the women that I did because each of them has made concessions in some way in order to still be part of the mainstream. So there's lots of women that I could have chosen who are actually too unruly, who are, you know, have excluded themselves from mainstream stardom because they are too queer, you know, or they are too black. Um and you know these people they they may still be celebrities oh, they may Can
0: s- you say an example?
1: Um yeah so someone like Leah Delorio who's on the show Orange is Orange the New Black.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she uh she's a very um masculine butch lesbian and super funny like an incredible incredible actress but because she isn't you know the type of lesbian that is considered you know, um, how do I put this? There's an idea that like, it's okay to be a lesbian in the public eye if you're still like feminine performing and, and making yourself amenable to the male gaze. So like you still look hot. You still
0: have to be in that category.
1: You still have to be hot in the way that like a heterosexual woman is trying to be hot, you know? Um, And I think that because a a butch woman excludes themselves from being desirable to men, to heterosexual men, that's, you know, that's just a step too far. Um, And that's, I think it'll be a long time still until we have a mainstream, massive star who is is masculine in that sort of way. And she's also, you know, she has um, like, she's a larger figure. So there's like um, and she's like very outspoken and loud and brash. Like there are other amalgamating ways in which she's unruly. Right, right, um,
0: right.
1: But I always think of someone like like Ellen DeGeneres
0: mm-hmm.
1: because she's queer. There, in order to be the huge celebrity and popular success all over America that she is, like that queerness had to be countered by. A lot of ruliness, <laughs> you know, so both the fact that she, you know, is in, in a monogamous relationship that, and like married and had like a beautiful wedding and she wears suits, but those suits are like, you know, very, like she, she wears makeup when she's on the screen, like her hair is short, but it, she's still feminine in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a fine line that you have to tread in order to be considered palatable to the mainstream here
0: and she also does um wonderful but very broad comedy she's not doing anything that's offensive i would say right Mm.
1: yes and she's not you know super political on her show she like you know a lot of her humor is like like i always think of her dancing which is like the most inoffensive thing
0: right right
1: (laughs) you know um
0: yeah. What concessions would you say that Hillary's made?
1: Uh, you know, I think that Hillary doesn't really care about... She's never cared about wardrobe and makeup. <laughs> you know, like, when she got into the White House, everyone made fun of her headbands and um, her kind of dowdy clothes. And she conceded to the idea of a makeover simply because she just didn't want to, like... she's sick of people talking about it. Mm. And I think on the campaign trail, like, you know, she, she doesn't... That's, she's so, (laughs) there are many other things that she wants to dedicate her time and her energy to, but if she, if she didn't have this, you know, immaculately done makeup that makes her look slightly younger, especially, you know, during the debates and that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. she, they didn't spend so much time thinking about, okay, what should you wear that makes you look feminine, but also that you could be the, the president, you know, like I think of each outfit that she wore to those three debates and how much people, how much times people yeah. spent. I thought that. about that
0: too. Hours and hours of just analyzing.
1: <laughs> and then compared to Donald Trump, who's just like, I'm going to wear a suit and a tie.
0: The women in your book, to borrow a phrase from someone else, um, even though they get all this and there's so much pressure on them and, and everything is, there's a double-edged sword to everything they do, yet they persist. <laughs> um, why would you say that they persist and what does it take?
1: I mean, I really think that these are tenacious women who, you know, their workaholism underlines how ambitious all of them were and how resilient they are. And I think you can't survive as an unruly woman in mainstream celebrity culture without that sort of resilience. Like Lena Dunham, right? She (laughs) has been like, a punching bag, sometimes worn, like, with reason, sometimes not, you know, everything she says is a firestorm, like, she cannot step out of the house, like, whatever she wears, whatever she says, and, you know, that's in part what her fame has been built on, but at the same time, just think about how much energy that takes, every single thing that you do, you know? I know, must be. Yeah, but, you know, there are other female stars, like, I think of Jennifer Lawrence, who, like, Aside from, you know, eating pizza and, like, joking about poops, like, she's never, she's never been very controversial. Right. Uh, you know, she she wrote that letter about how she advocated for equal pay. That's probably the most controversial thing that she's done. Um, but still, that was, you know, it was easy to celebrate that. There wasn't a way that... That's that not was really
0: a, controversial anymore. Just yeah. nothing's happening.
1: <laughs> yeah, there wasn't, like, a... Um, a dissenting view like who is gonna not cheer that right (laughs) um and I think that the fact that she that Lena Dunham persists in her career you know both in making art but also like being a public person is a testament to the fact that she she really does want things to change and like whatever she can do she absorbs those blows so that in the hopes that something can change
0: I just thought if I can ask you about Bill Cosby, because um, in terms of your studies on celebrity and image and and, and this just uh, what's happened this week and what your thoughts on the mistrial and and the news yesterday that he's now going on tour to help. um, And what was the phrasing? Do you remember?
1: He wants to teach men how to avoid sexual assault charges. Uh. Um, what do you make of this? Oh, I mean, I think that's a profound miscalculation. Like, I, I think that his defense and 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 him, like, you know, this mistrial, a mistrial does not mean not guilty, right? Right. Like right. a mistrial, and they're going to pursue this case again. And I think the the sheer preponderance of evidence and women who have come forward, like he's women. Lost, Yeah, he has lost this case in the court of public opinion already regardless of what happens in the civil case and like there's not there's no coming back from this and I think even though there are um, you know Rebecca Tracer wrote about this recently in her piece on on the Bill Cosby case there are, there are things that happen every day that make it seem like okay so I thought that we were moving forward on the idea that like sexual harassment is not okay that sexual, abuse is not okay that, you know, women believe, like we will believe women, but there's so, there's such a massive infrastructure in already in place that makes it difficult for women to come forward. It makes it difficult for women to want to come forward, just being surrounded by what they see with things like the Bill Cosby case. So what I hate is that if this, you know, what happened in this case means that other women will be like, well, why would I come forward? Nothing's going to happen. You know.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, who would come forward when 60 women have come forward and, and this happens?
1: Right. Mm. But I do think that other women have come forward, you know, like what happened with Roger Ailes? What happened with um, Bill O'Reilly? Like these people who are central to Fox News, like they're gone. Right. And yes, they got these massive you know, uh, paychecks when they left that that was part of their, their, um, their severance packages, but at the same time they're still gone, like they are, they will no longer have this place of power. So it's, there's competing messages.
0: Right. But do you think that this mostly is about, about celebrity, that that's what's sort of um, maybe the wrong word, but protecting Bill Cosby
1: or? Um, no, I don't. I think, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine who has watched the the trial very closely. I was like, who do you think on this jury? Who's the holdout? And she's like, you know what? I think that it was probably, you know, one, maybe two white males. Mm-hmm. And for them, it's not about Cosby's celebrity. And it's not even necessarily like how could Bill Cosby do this? It's you know, women do this because they're fame hungry. Women do this because they want money. And I think you know the particular thing that maybe isn't getting discussed that much is that because this is a civil case, and it's a civil case because the um, the statute of limitations on on the other sexual assaults has run out, so they had to try it in civil court, and so that means money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think if this were a criminal case, it probably would have happened very differently. Oh, you do.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Because there is there's just a preponderance of evidence like Cosby saying that he used quaaludes on people that he dated him also saying like he he admitted it. Yes, yes. You know, and so the decision like what a jury decides in a criminal case is whether a person is guilty. What they decide in a civil case is whether this person whether the victims deserve money, right? right. It's not, right. you know, it shouldn't be that simple, but that is often what they are deciding. And what I think men, older men in particular, are reticent to do, some of them in America, is to award women for coming forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see what happens. Hopefully they'll, you know, this is not the end of it. But um, lastly, going back to book, there's, these unruly women that you have talk about your book, there's still something. They ha- they face a lot of things. We women face a lot of things in general, but it still feels like a positive time that that these women's are gaining dominance in our zeitgeist um, and coming forward. Would you say, or or is it has it always been like that? And I just haven't seen it. Or would you also think see something positive about this after writing the book?
1: I mean, I think, you know, the. if I were to write the book right now, like if I could put a new subtitle on it, it would be the rise, reign and rejection of the unruly woman, because I do think we're in a moment of pushback. But the history of feminism is two steps forward, one step back.
0: Mm-hmm. That's still
1: progress, you know. <laughs> but like if you just seriously, if you look even at the last hundred years, like any time there have not been advances, there has then been a pushback. Mm-hmm. And I just hope, you know, the thing that reader I say in the book and then I encourage all women, even if you don't read the book, is to not participate in that backlash. You know, that's how we can stop it, is to not become party to it and, and, you know, buy into either, you know, subconsciously or consciously, the discourses that say, like, this is a certain way that women should behave in public.
0: Right. And not shame other women.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even just shame them by, you know, I think sometimes we think, oh, shaming a woman is like scolding them or being like, is saying, ooh, that's gross. But for me, it also includes the things that you think to yourself, right? So when you see someone in on the cover of a magazine or on the street, and what do you think to yourself about that person? Mm-hmm. Like, those are the places where you can be like, here's how I'm reacting. Why am I reacting that way?
0: Right. Thank you so much. Anna, and this was very interesting. Thank you for taking so much time and for the book.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. Great, really great interview. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much, Anne Helen Peterson. Her book Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Rain of the Unruly Woman is out now. You can get it on Amazon, for example. And the audiobook is read by Anne Helen herself, so you can listen to that while you're relaxing on the beach. But if the weather is anything like it tends to be here in Sweden, there'll be some rain. So that's a great opportunity to catch up on some TV and film in these coming summer months. So here are some quick tips from me. For me personally, the spring has brought some really great TV drama that you've heard me talk a lot about here on the show. Like if you're not caught up on The Leftovers last season with the incredible Carrie Coon, do so. And of course, Handmaid's Tale, which quite honestly blew me away. Its way-too-relevant, frightening theme, the powerhouse acting by Elizabeth Moss and the rest of the stellar cast, and those incredible visuals, it will stay with me for a very long time. One of my favorites, Aziz Ansari, his Master of None Season 2 was even better than the first, with its romantic Italian storyline that was so great. And there were two bottle episodes on this season, a Thanksgiving episode revolving around one of the characters coming out, and another one dedicated to different people in New York. They were really some of the best single TV episodes that this season had to offer, so don't miss that. And the incredible Netflix documentary, The Keepers, that made me so angry. It's about sexual abuse, murder, and a massive cover-up by the Catholic Church in Baltimore. It's a really tough documentary to watch, but incredibly good. She was murdered our senior year, and it's always haunted many people in the community. Our mission, we were driven to find out who hurt Sister Kathy. People pop up from 45, 50 years ago who say, I have a story I'd like to tell you. I believe Kathy Sesnick was killed because she was going to talk about what went on at Keo. There's an on the record public story of what happened to Sister Kathy. On a lighter note, what you really cannot miss this summer is my new favorite show, Glow, executive produced by Genji Cohen. It's the story of an all women's wrestling team based on the real gorgeous ladies of wrestling from the 80s. It is so funny, so poignant, and honest, and with the best 80s hair and soundtrack. Alison Brie, that we know from Mad Men and Community, is spectacular in her role here on GLOW.
1: This is Sebastian Howard, our producer. This is my first Hollywood party. There are drugs in the fucking robot. Thank you. Wrestling is about type. You're a sexy party girl. You're
0: an Arab. You mean stereotype. Yes, bingo, exactly. You're a big black girl. What the fuck you say?
1: Oh. Lady wrestlers, I get it. Women can do anything men do, blah, blah, blah. We'll get wild, wild, wild. How'd that look? I got chills. Yeah, you would.
0: So you think I got a funny face. We're empowered, we're the heroes. You want the show to happen.
1: This is the only place I get to do what I want to do. People respect me here. We got to shoot this thing in like five weeks. This could either
0: feel dinky or it could feel epic. So let's give them one. Blood tips! Storytelling. Storytelling. On the film side this spring, I really, really loved Wonder Woman and a movie called Get Out. So go out and see those this summer. So what am I looking forward to on TV this summer? Well, I'm curious about the new Netflix drama Ozark starring Jason Bateman and the great Laura Linney about a Chicago family that relocates to the Ozarks. And Saturday Night Live starts its weekend update specials in August, and I always like those. And the show Disjointed with Kathy Bates about a pot dispensary. I'm also always looking forward to the return of one of my favorites, Broad City. Netflix is also coming out with a new movie called To the Bone. It's by Unreal creator and former Buffy writer Marty Noxon. It's about her early struggle with an eating disorder starring Lily Collins, and the trailer looks really, really powerful, so I'm looking forward to seeing that.
1: All right, ready? 280 for the pork, 350 for the buttered noodles, 150 for the roll, and 75 for butter. It's like you have calorie Asperger's. That's not breakfast, neither is coffee.
0: You do a lot of sit-ups. I'm not going to treat you if you aren't interested in living.
1: Good speech.
0: John Singleton's new show, Snowfall, I'm curious about that. And how will the new TV adaptation of Stephen King's The Mist be? Will it be any good? And of course, there's David Simon's The Deuce, but that's way over in September, so we'll have a lot of time to talk about that before then. Film-wise, I'm really, really curious to see War for the Planet of the Apes, which I'm already hearing such good things about stateside. Years from now, your children will ask you, what did you do in the greatest war? And you can tell them, I fought to protect this world. We created this. But now... We will bring an end to their kind. And Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, a historical war film about the evacuation of Allied forces from the beaches of Dunkirk. The visuals in the trailer look amazing. And Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled, for which she won Best Director in Cannes just recently, only the second female to do so in decades. That looks really, really good, starring Nicole Kidman, among others. And a small movie that I'm hearing such good things about, The Big Sick. It's based on the real-life love story of Pakistani-born comedian Kumal Nanjani and his future wife Emily about their love story and their struggle with culture clashes. I'm hearing such good things about that.
1: Are you judging Pakistan's next hot model?
0: You know how we have arranged marriage in my culture?
1: Oh my god, I'm so stupid. Can you imagine a world in which we end up together? I don't know.
0: I'm looking for Emily Gardner. She was checked in tonight.
1: There's an infection. We put her in a medically induced coma. Coma.
0: You should call her family.
1: Thank you, Kamala.
0: We're going to handle things from here. I think I'm just going to wait anyway. You guys broke up. I'm not sure why you're here. I'm just going to stay for a second. You go, then go with me. I think I screwed up with your daughter. Yeah, it did. What should say? to give you some advice come out love isn't easy that's why they call it love i don't really get that i know i thought i could just start saying something and something small would come out Now that's just a few things you may want to look out for. We will be back in just a few weeks to cover everything that will be going on later this fall. But until then, from all of us here, editor Tom Hansen, producer René Wittestadt, and myself, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful summer.